it's like really pick your investors wisely. I mean, everyone says this, but don't take money from from someone that your your gut doesn't feel right about because it is definitely a relationship that actually is, is incredibly significant. Like these are the people who should be supporting you in highs and lows and should ideally be giving you valuable input that you can take on board. If you feel like it's input that you're going to have to ignore or that, oh, you know, they're going to change our business or our product, then that's a bad relationship. For me, probably what was really surprising is how fast people can uh, can be can come to conviction. And I think that's how you probably also know the right investors is how quickly can you both get on the same page. This is The Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of capital raising law firm Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Hello, founders and friends. Today, I'm chatting with Daniel Vasilev. Daniel is the co-founder of Relevance AI, a tech startup that gives businesses artificial intelligence superpowers using a no-code AI platform. Daniel is the true embodiment of a creator and problem solver. As a high school student, he created an app that allowed users to listen to YouTube music in the background, hitting 1 million users in just over two years. And when Pokemon Go was at its peak popularity, Daniel built an app that located Pokemons. And that hit 4 million users in just two months. And these are just the tip of the iceberg. In this episode, you'll hear Daniel's guiding principle for validating ideas, how a conversation with a friend at a high school party led to a long-lasting co-founder relationship, and how he managed to successfully raise $3 million without it taking him away from the day-to-day business of Relevance AI. Let's dive in. Daniel, welcome to the show. I am so delighted to be talking with you today. Hey, Mylan, wonderful to be here. Daniel, your company is Relevance AI. What's your elevator pitch? So Relevance AI gives businesses AI superpowers. It's a no-code AI platform that enables teams and people within them to apply pre-built AI workflows from things like large language models to generative AI onto their own data with connectors to data warehouses or uploading via CSV available. We've got a particular focus on working with unstructured data, given that you can't easily apply traditional analysis techniques on images, text, video, and audio. And so our customers are able to accelerate and even automate some of the most tedious manual processes, things like tagging images or coding open-ended survey responses or extracting objects from audio responses. And with us, they're even able to improve their collaboration cycles with their data science teams by enabling them to work on upstream problems whilst collaborating on more traditional and more available AI workflows through Relevance. And what's your big audacious dream for Relevance AI? Our vision for Relevance is that is essentially to be synonymous with unstructured data. So when somebody says CRM to you, you probably think of Salesforce. Nowadays, if someone talks about a data warehouse, you probably think of Snowflake. We want to be exactly the same when it comes to unstructured data so that when companies and businesses want to solve um, specific problems and understand more about the data that they have and make better decisions from it, they think of us immediately. So that's 
where I want us to get to. Daniel, prior to founding Relevance AI in 2020, you had developed quite a number of different apps and a couple of those went viral in an extremely short amount of time. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the two apps that went viral? My co-founder, Jackie, and I actually started building stuff together a lot earlier than Relevance. The first app that we built was straight out of high school. We were at a friend's 18th birthday and somehow Jackie mentioned this idea that he'd been having for an app and I overheard him talking about it and then I just said to him, I think I, I think I can probably build that pretty quickly. It doesn't sound too difficult. But a couple of weeks later, uh, he messages me and he says, hey, remember how you said you could build it? Uh, why don't we try it? And so we did. I spent probably about two weeks building this app. It was for essentially letting you listen to music in the background while streaming. So it's for specifically like YouTube videos, which back then you couldn't do because there wasn't YouTube premium. Yeah, so we built it and launched it and then pretty much forgot about it, or at least I did, whilst Jackie was doing some marketing around it. What was it called? It was called Audio Pocket. And then after that, a couple of months later, I think it was, I was actually overseas on a trip and Jackie calls me up and says, we've got 50,000 users. Wow. And uh, I was pretty surprised by that because initially I was trying to figure out what is he talking about. And then I realized, oh, it's the app we launched. He must have been trying to grow it. And 50,000 users at the time seemed like a huge number. Uh, This was before, to be honest, I knew much about startups or Silicon Valley or anything of the sort. So we just put it out there, had 50,000 users, and then we decided, well, let's monetize it. And so I was actually on a ferry boat uh, ride for four hours. And during that time, I just chucked in some advertising. And then within the next nine months, we'd hit a million uh, users using the app. Wow. What did you end up doing with it? We ended up growing it for quite a while. So I think it probably existed for about two years or so. And during that time, we added like, more functionality, premium, and all sorts of things. And you know, during university, it was an excellent source of income for us. But it was also a great experience for just trialing things. All the things that I started reading about afterwards about startups and going through the Sydney Incubate program, the Sydney University Incubate program. I was saying like, well, I can apply all these things on an app that I've actually built. I can test. I can learn more about A-B testing by actually building into an app. I can understand how different marketing techniques will relate to our growth. I can see how different monetization strategies affect our revenue. So it was essentially just a playground for us to experiment and learn more about. And yeah, ultimately, we, we shut it down. But before that, we had already started building uh, other apps. As during university, we just decided, let's just keep building stuff. It's potentially an interesting thing for us to do. Uh, it's also quite rewarding but from a kind of like a, it's fun to build stuff and put it out there that people use. But also, it was good income for us. What was the other app that went viral that you had built? Yeah, so after about a year of Audio Pocket, Pokemon Go came out. So at this stage, we had already built a couple of other things. Like our whole thesis was problems that we experience or face or, or see that people face, we'll just quickly build something for it, put it out in the market and test it out. And our first version would typically be horrible. It'd be absolutely horrendous. I'd look at it and be like, this is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. But importantly, if people use it, then you know it's... Yeah. You mentioned a thesis. Is this just sort of day-to-day interest in building these things? Or was this part of the Incubate program that you were talking about? Like personally, I've always been really motivated by building stuff. That's how I picked up programming in the first place. And so then when, yeah, when Pokemon Go came out, we were always looking for opportunities like that, that could potentially, things that we can build around. So many people were using it. We were thinking about what stuff could we do? And I think it was one night, I still remember it quite clearly, actually. It was like 9 p.m. where I was messaging Jack and I said to him, do you think it's going to be useful if we found a way to get the location of the Pokemon and then put on a map? Do you think people would use that? And I hadn't really like, played the game, so I was just theorizing here, but he, he thought it'd be a really good idea. And I said, oh, no, nah, maybe not. What's the point? And then he said, no, no, just build it, just build it. And so I started building it that night. And 3 a.m. I had submitted the iOS version to the App Store for review. 
and a little bit after that I submitted the Android version which comes up a lot faster because the review process is automated and so I went to bed and woke up the next day and we had 20,000 users on the Android version and then within the next two months we hit 4 million users and it kept growing. That's amazing and how did you monetize that one? Well, initially we did no monetization. So the first two weeks, it was completely free. It was literally us living out of this, out of this basement. It was actually the incubate, old incubate office that they gave to us. We just lived there trying to scale the service uh, and trying to cope with the demand because I was basically on a computer <laughs> constantly scaling the servers and fixing bugs and adding new features. And Jackie was in front of this uh, like 55-inch TV with like all sorts of marketing channels and like support and stuff because our Twitter hit 100,000 followers during that time. So people constantly were messaging us and he was replying and and devising ways to get us further growth by, you know, sharing stories from that people are sending him anonymously in other places, kind of like anonymizing them, but then sharing that story. And then that gets picked up. And there was one example I remember where he had responded to um, some messages in like different languages using Google Translate. And somebody had picked, took a screenshot of that and then taken a screenshot of the actual official game developers who were not very responsive, responding to some celebrity and nobody else. And they were like, why does some like little uh, app have better support than this huge company um, and then that went viral and it got us a whole new batch of users so it was basically like two weeks living out of that keeping things up and running and then we added monetization after that initially it was just advertising uh, but then afterwards we progressively added um, premium features with both of these apps was it just you and jackie running them the whole time yeah it was just the two of us after we did our first app we were then able to go on upwork and find some freelancers and get them to do bits and pieces for us but the vast majority of it was just the two of us because we were completely bootstrapped so we hadn't raised any money. The only money that we had was the money that we made. We couldn't just invest in growth like when you were backed by VCs. Uh, so it was a very small operation and we had to be as savvy as possible. That's really how Jack and I both really got to understand more about building products, building something valuable for customers and working with them, monetizing it, and also how you use machine learning and AI with data in a very practical sense, which ultimately, I suppose, led us to where we are today. Without that experience, we probably would have been stuck in machine learning and AI as being this kind of very theoretical academic thing that you would apply maybe in cow competitions or you do some basic linear regression. But through that experience, we realized it doesn't just have to be that you can apply it in so many different ways that impact your bottom line, uh, which for us was obviously critical when we were building our apps. With all these apps that you were building, you would have picked up a whole raft of skills. Why did you choose Relevance AI and Data Science? as your next sort of big project? One of the things that first of all both appeals to myself and Jackie is, um, I guess, mathematics. We both, we actually met in a maths class uh, in year eight. I think we've always had a natural gravitation to problems that involve kind of maths and numbers and, and statistics. And so when we were building our apps and we were picking up all of the kind of the business side and the product side of things, uh, we were always just excited about using new and evolving techniques that enabled you to access data. So I think that was one thing. It's just a natural passion for both of us. And the second thing is that we just see the opportunity here. When it comes to how businesses and use their data, they're becoming increasingly data-driven. But what that means for a lot of companies is kind of basic analytics or just crunching some numbers, which is, you know, it's amazing. Going from zero to that is, can be life-changing for a business. It can enable you to make such better decisions. But when you think about most data that's being stored by organizations, it doesn't just, it's not just numbers. It's comments, feedback. Um, you know, you might have surveys. Uh, you might be, you know, somebody might be writing documentation or Notion document, whatever it might be. People are constantly writing content, producing content that doesn't necessarily fit into a, you know, a, a bar chart. Because we had been able to successfully leverage that sort of data building up products and we could see the benefit of it. Um, Jackie had uh, applied that when he was head of machine learning at IG Satellite to 
help improve the way they use machine learning there and to actually improve their fraud detection. And so we had seen it both from kind of startups and corporate, how much value you can get from using this data. And I think that for us was kind of a pivotal moment. And I still remember actually in um, late 2019, early 2020, uh, Jackie came to me and started showing to me some of the, uh, the stuff that he was working on in the machine learning space and how how much it had come, um, how much it had advanced from what it was when we were like building our apps. And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, this is incredible. Like this is just the 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 how game changing this can be for working with this data is 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 incredible. And so um, that to us was when we knew we have to build something for this because we also appreciated how difficult it is to build this. Um, and we felt like we actually had unique insights both from the experience that we had had working on our apps, working across corporate and other startups, and seeing where the space is going to be able to actually deliver something valuable uh, to customers worldwide. You've talked about your co-founder, Jackie, that's Jackie Co. and I'm going to delve into that relationship a little bit more. But before I do, you're clearly a builder and a creator, Daniel. Where did the interest with building things come from? So I was quite fortunate growing up that, so my dad was in technology, like in IT, not necessarily kind of like in the tech startup way of the world, but when I was growing up, he had a company that worked with kind of like banking institutions and they were building software for them. And so I was always exposed at an early age from to software, I suppose, and, and to business. So I was very fortunate to have that environment around me. Once I started learning what software can do and how you can actually, you know, from a laptop potentially change people's lives somewhere else in the world. And when I say change their lives, it might be something minuscule to making it more enjoyable for that day, or it might be actually something transformational. I think that to me was something that I could, you know, in some ways feel really motivated and passionate about. In some ways, that's really my obsession, I suppose. It's actually just building stuff that impacts others. And the way that I can do that is through technology. That's the way that I can have an impact. Um, And early on, one of the first things I built was for this game called RuneScape that my friends and I were playing. I'd actually got quite sick of playing that game because it was very monotonous. You'd go around, you'd click on trees, you'd chop it down, get some XP and so forth. And I didn't really find that a lot of fun and so one of the first things I wanted to do was I thought to myself well surely this can be automated like I'm just literally clicking left and right like this can't be that complex and so one of the first things I built was this um, bot for woodcutting and RuneScape and that ended up being actually quite popular because I inadvertently made one of the more more efficient ones by being able to actually do something really simple which was you track the time that the trees uh, get cut down so you know when they respawn so you can wait at the one that the next one that's going to be respawning instead of the last one, so it gives you like a, an edge above everyone else. And so that to me was my first exposure. I'm really building stuff and then selling it. And I think after that, I was just hooked and I couldn't stop. The two apps that we talked about, Audio Pocket and Pokerware, you built those while you were in university. And the idea for Audio Pocket, you said, was at an 18th birthday party. Where did you learn how to code? And you must have been quite young. Late primary school, early high school is probably when I started coding. So on the one hand, I, like I said, I had that exposure from my dad who had introduced me to the world of programming and encouraged me to look into it. And on the other hand, I think for me, like it was just a lot of Googling and researching and following tutorials and kind of picking up along the way. And by the time I was building Astro Jackie, I'd already had six, seven years experience of actually just coding stuff. For me, you know, I never chose to do programming for the sake of like programming. It was more of a, the means to an end rather it was for me being able to deliver, like I said, that product, that thing that I wanted to build, solve a problem that I had, and it was simply the best way to do it. I just needed to learn it in order to get my outcome, and so uh, all the resources were available online. I would just pick it up and, and go from there. Wow, that's amazing. So was your dad a programmer? He was in his early days. Like at that stage, like he'd, he'd done programming like through university and stuff like that. At that stage, he was 
more involved in the business side of things, but his background is incredibly heavy in maths as well. So algorithms and stuff like that were never, you know, was stuff that he could always help me with. I remember when I was a kid, there was this NCSS computer challenge here in Sydney. It was basically just like solving algorithms. So he would help figure out how do you actually implement the algorithm to, to solve this challenge. And so always I'd have a lot of support from him. And then the actual syntax of like, you know, how do you write stuff in Python or how do you write stuff in Java or whatever it was, you could always just, you know, it's always a Google away. If you're motivated enough, uh, you can follow some tutorials and, and pick it up. Super inspiring. Your co-founder, Jackie Coe, you said you met in maths class. How did you and Jackie decided to go into business together? Was it a conscious decision? <laughs> Not at all. So we met, uh, I moved to uh, Sydney in year eight. And so I joined the same school that Jackie was already attending. And we happened to be in the same maths class. I don't think neither of us expected for things to work out the way they had. I think there was just so many you know, little things that happened along the way. So he's also had a pretty entrepreneurial background when he was a kid. He also grew up in an environment that kind of fostered that. And I think that idea that he prompted at the 18th birthday party was just kind of like a, a happy coincidence or almost a lucky accident that it then led to everything else that happened today, which I think, yeah, we didn't really expect. I, I mean, I think both of us probably expected to be doing similar things in similar fields, not necessarily like in startups or building apps together. Were you good friends or just sort of casual friends at school? We both had friends that were closer, but we were always kind of like within each other's circles. There was a period of time in high school, like I don't know, year eight or year nine, where like we started playing some game online, like a whole bunch of people from school. And like, you know, we played that together and stuff like that. So I think there was like obviously lots of moments throughout high school where we were hanging out. So yeah, pretty close. Have you ever had to step back and think whether or not or how you would work together as business partners? I mean, not really, just because we kind of fell into it. When we built our first app, no one thought that would be successful. No one thought that would lead to a second app being successful or five others or, you know, no, nobody knew it would lead to where it led today. So we just did it because we wanted to. It was fun. We were building something that we enjoyed. And, you know, during our first year of university, we were very lucky that we had the freedom to just explore that, that those sorts of opportunities. So I fell into that. Then we built a first successful one. We worked well together. We had very complementary skills. We built another thing and that, and that worked out and then we kept building other stuff and they seem to work out. So I think for us, the most important part is that it's a known quantity, right? We've had a relationship together that we've built over, you know, first of all, on a very, just on a, on a personal level after high school, but then afterwards on a business level as well, we built that relationship before starting Relevance. So we knew exactly what each brought to the table. We already knew how to kind of deal with, let's say, conflict or how to resolve issues that may come about. We understand each other's personalities. So, you know, if someone can be um, sometimes a bit more blunt or not, you know, you don't have to kind of worry about trying to hide that because the other person understands it's not a, it's not an attack on them. It might just be an attack on ideas. There hasn't been a time where we've questioned like, why have we done this? Because it's, you know, it's worked well and I think we make a really good team together. Daniel, you mentioned Incubate. At what point did you join the Incubate program? It was so after we had grown that to about a million users. It's the end of my first year of university, but I randomly saw it and I was like, why not? Let's just apply. We had a pretty bad idea. It was this about making scheduling between the timetable with your friends and university easier. Basically pull your calendars and sync them and send back to you the free slots. Why was that a bad idea? There's not really a market for it. Right. <laughs> Students are not necessarily going to pay a lot of money for that. And honestly, it's not that pressing of a need because uh, people just, I think, still fall back just missing each other. But it was fun, you know, it was, it was a fun idea. And we got in and what helped us was the fact that we had, like, obviously prior expertise in building stuff that was successful. And for me, that was an important moment because it exposed me to a lot of other people building startups 
and it exposed me to more of that world, which until that stage, I really knew very little. And it built my network with people who you know, are very crucial to me today, whether that's mentors, friends. It's been incredibly impactful. And actually, two of the people that I met then are now invested in relevance. I would never have thought that to have happened, but those networks that you've made can really impact you later down the track. What's one thing that you learned creating and growing the audio pocket and PokerWare that you've applied to relevance and this is probably just more of a, not just those two, but in general, is that if you're solving a, a big enough problem, customers will use the crappy version that you've built, even if it is really bad. Because fundamentally, there's two types of feedback that I think customers uh, can give you, and you have to be really cautious of like how you interpret that feedback. And is it honest or not? Because a lot of times you might build something, customer might say to you, oh, if, if you've got, you know, it's really good, but because it's missing this feature, I can't use it. Whether you're a product manager or a founder or whatever it might be, one of your responsibilities is to actually understand are they just saying that or is that feature actually critical to them being using to use it? And so for me, one of the lessons that I've always took on board when building products is what, what does the MVP actually look like? What is the minimal amount of features, no matter how crappy they are, needed to be able to, for, for us to solve a customer's pain point? And so I think that's probably the biggest lesson because I've seen so many people who kind of get stuck in the cycle of constantly just trying to add that extra feature because they think it's going to unlock customers using it, but actually it might be that the pain point isn't there. And so for me, it's, it's always been kind of like a North Star in terms of building products. How can we build the crappiest version that people can use so that we can validate it? And I think for, for B2B, that can come, up, come about a little bit differently because there are obviously some stuff in B2B that you just have to have, like from stuff from security to um, SSO to whatnot. But what's been really critical is being able to see our customers respond when you're speaking to their pain points. And for me, one of the biggest things that happened at Relevance that was really a strong signal that we're moving in the right direction is when customers started wanting to send us data without all of, all of the kind of security hoops. Because that to me showed, okay, they're willing to sacrifice, potentially expose themselves to extra risk because they need you so badly. So you have to always be looking for ways to validate your the pain points that you're solving where customers will take actions that are kind of like worst case scenario where the product isn't perfect, but they still want to use it. Or they want to use you so badly that they're going to send you data in a maybe slightly risky way for them or for their processes. So that's always been a really good way of kind of identifying if it's going to work or not and kind of hold us true because I think otherwise you can get stuck into this concept of scope creep where you constantly keep adding, adding, adding. And sometimes, you know, the idea just isn't good and you have to be able to accept that. Yeah, that's great feedback. And with relevance, so it's B2B, how have you gone about validating what the customer problem is. Yeah, so early days, first thing we did when we started building relevance was build product, not speak to customers because we had like, I think, two kind of pieces of unique insight. One was we knew how to solve this problem, but number two was that we knew this market was growing. First of all, we had to actually build something that could do what we were talking about for people to believe us. What we first did was we spent about a month building a prototype that was basically showcasing the technology in kind of like a a magic fashion. And what we picked was a search problem. So we showed people how you can put in a query where none of the words match what's in the context. Or you can put in an image and none of the images are similar. And basically you can put in a piece of data and we can show you the data that's most similar to that. And then we went to speak to businesses and spoke to them about the, the issues that they had with the data and how they could solve them using this technology. And then once we started doing that, we then started asking questions about, okay, so how could you apply this? Like, do you see any use cases for this? And once they started sharing to us the problems that they were facing, now that they knew this was possible, it was when we realized, okay, there's definitely so many use cases here because people would be doing this manually or they wouldn't even be doing it because it'd be so difficult. One way we validated it. And then the second way was because of what Jackie was doing previously, what he was building, he had actually successfully built the technology to uh, use unstructured data in a very primitive way to what we're doing 
today, but he had done that to actually identify lots of missed opportunities in terms of fraud. We also knew that this technology is 100% solving pain points because we had solved them in that environment. So that was kind of like a the rough way we started. And then once we had started, we started obviously evolving that process. Once we had our first customer and then them using it and their usage increasing, that was kind of like the, the surefire way that we knew we're onto the right thing. As you do with any startup, you kind of speak to more and more people that you can try to speak to. You show them more and more demos and you kind of use all that feedback to see, okay, what's sticking, what's not? What are people using in that crappy state? What are they not? So you can kind of keep almost like zigzagging towards your destination that you're trying to get to. I love it. Daniel, I'd like to talk about your capital raising journey now. By August 2021, Relevance had completed two pre-seed rounds that you raised through Safe Notes. And then in December 2021, you completed a US $3 million seed round. And the raise was headed by Insight Partners from the US with Archangel Ventures and Galileo Ventures following on. How did you decide that it was the right time to raise external funds? Just to clarify that the pre-seed was actually done at the end of 2020. For us, when we started building Relevance, the one thing we knew was that this is very different to what we had built in the past in the sense that the opportunity and the scope here is enormous. We have an opportunity to actually define a whole category of work with data and we have the means to get there. Unfortunately, unlike our previous kind of products, it doesn't. It means that you know you can't just whip it out in a week or two, just put it out there, some growth marketing in it and get it out and get to the stage that you want to be because that's just not fast enough. So that's how we initially started off operating because obviously we wanted to prove out the idea. We wanted to make sure that this is the right place where we wanted to give our focus and attention. And so by kind of like that August, September, October uh, 2020, we've realized, you know what, venture capital makes a lot of sense for us because it's actually going to help us hit our goals much faster than we would otherwise. It can help us invest in areas that we know we need, features and functionality that we know we actually need to be able to keep expanding in a way that otherwise we will just have to keep waiting to kind of hit more revenue and then invest that ourselves. And so that's when we were already speaking to uh, Galileo, uh, which is like James Alexander and Hugh Stevens. Uh, James was the founder of Incubate, um, and Ray Nong about the idea of venture capital. And actually they had already flagged in the journey that they were interested. But for us, it was very important to be in a place where we knew that this was it. We had strong confidence that we were tackling a pain point that really does exist and we are solving it in a way that is impactful. Once we had that realization that this was the only way we could solve it, we decided to go ahead and do our pre-seed. And, you know, we were very lucky in the sense that because of our experience before that and because of the relationships we had built, it was a very natural fit. We already knew the people that we liked. We had, you know, lots of respect for James and Hugh. We had lots of respect respect for Rain. It was very easy for us to actually not be convinced, but to decide to take on uh, venture capital. Uh, and then also uh, Sam Zhang from Curious Thing as an angel operator also joined in, in the round. He was someone that we could see a lot of value uh, delivered to us because he had been through that data journey when it comes to startups and was an excellent mentor. So for us, it was about finding, okay, who are the right people that we can work with to actually take us to that next stage? And we trusted all those individuals to be the right people for us. And how did you meet Insight Partners for your seed round? So we actually met them through James at Galileo. So he had set up an intro with Insight for us. Uh, once we realized we should look to do a seed round because we were getting more and more kind of like traction in the market and we knew that we could actually be moving even faster. We hadn't actually done much raising um, at that stage. We had spoken to a couple of funds, but not too many. And then James said, look, I think you really should speak to Insight Partners. They're an amazing VC and uh, they've also got that US exposure, which I think to us would be quite important as we were global from day one. And we had our first meeting with them actually from that introduction. And I think everyone on that call kind of knew that this was going to be a great fit. So we were initially obviously a bit hesitant about taking capital from such a huge fund because of the risk of, you know, are you going to be just a small fish? They were coming very, like if they were to come in, uh, they were going to come in very early because they typically don't come in so early to do an investment. 
But from that conversation, I think everyone could feel that there was an excellent opportunity here in terms of us working together. The skills were rematching up. And also insight, um, so on the team, George Matthew, he knew firsthand the problem that businesses were experiencing with data. So he's investing in some of the top AI companies in the world. And before that was a president and CEO of Alteryx, which is a very popular structured data platform. And so he understood the scope of the problem and could see how we were solving it, understood the AI behind it, like the machine learning side, how it can be applied to this problem. And of course, personally, I think we're excited about that opportunity as well. So at the end of that conversation, I think we all felt like this was a great timing and a great group of people. Then fast forward, I think a month, we, we had a term sheet. Once the raise process started, what did your day-to-day business look like? Were you able to spend time working on the business or was it completely focused on the raise itself? The pre-seed and the seed, we actually weren't that consumed with spending time on raising just because of with the pre-seed, we already had like a really good network that we could leverage to speak to who are interested. So it was a very kind of easy process to move to a safe and uh, get that done. And then on the seed round, we actually didn't spend much time uh, talking to other investors because we hadn't really kind of like kicked off that kind of traditional, like, let's go out and, and raise and once we had met the right people, we knew that, you know, even if we meet others, we still want these people involved. So and the, the round isn't big enough to fit everyone. So it was an easy decision for us to make. I think probably the most time-consuming part was afterwards. Once we had already accepted the term sheet and then beginning the process of the legal side, that's when I spent a bit more time focusing on that. And whilst Jackie was more focused on product and business. What surprised you most about the capital raising process? I think what surprised me was like when you meet the right people, how fast they can come to conviction. I think that's a really important thing for me. One thing that I guess previously being in a very bootstrap environment, one of the things I was worried about venture capital was, okay, you're bringing people onto your cap table, which means that on the one hand, you can either treat them as, you know, they don't matter, they don't own much, like still it's just the founders, or you can treat them as, you know what, they're a significant part of your business now where they can actually contribute lots of value and you can leverage them and, and you can take in their input as well. And for me, it was like trying to understand how that dynamic would work. Fortunately, I think for us, what's been really important, and this is why I would suggest to everyone, it's like really pick your investors wisely. I mean, everyone says this, but don't take money from, from someone that your, your gut doesn't feel right about because it is definitely a relationship that actually is, is incredibly significant. Like these are the people who should be supporting you in highs and lows and should ideally be giving you valuable input that you can take on board. If you feel like it's input that you're going to have to ignore or that, oh, you know, they're going to change our business or our product, then that's a bad relationship. For me, probably what was really surprising is how fast people can come, uh, can be, can come to conviction. And I think that's how you probably also know the right investors is how quickly can you both get on the same page? How quickly can you both see the vision? How quickly can you both understand how this is going to be solved? And most importantly, how willing are you both to work together to get there? And so for me, it was, yeah, that was probably the most surprising thing was just seeing like really good investors, how they operate and how they move and then how they make themselves available to, to helping you solve the problems that you have to solve. Did you do any due diligence on the prospective investors? Yeah, we did. So with all investors that, like, that we did on our first hand, we asked to speak to founders that they'd invested in. And we would, and you know, we would ask the founders, what happened at your worst moments? Like, have you had a bad time? And like, how do they react? And I think that's when you get the best answers because, you know, what you care about is not when times are going well, but when things are going a little bit harder or things are challenging, that's when good investors shine. So we would speak to a few founders from the portfolio that we would pick that we would think would be kind of relevant to the space that we're in. And based on their kind of responses, get a gauge on what the investors like. But the second thing for us was really just 
once you've had that kind of like due diligence on there, it's also just speaking to the investors, really understanding their background, what their motivations are, and making sure that their values line up in the same way when you're hiring for your team and you have a set of like values for your culture. You want to make sure that your investors line up to that in some way. Like if they're completely different and, and don't line up with your own values, it's going to make working on them very difficult. It also means that you're going to come at times where you might not understand each other as easily. And I think having that kind of common set of values that you operate from makes it a lot easier to understand one another. And once you understand one another and have good communication, then problems are much easier to solve. If you don't have the good com- communication, one might say they're impossible to solve. So um, for me, it was, it was definitely about that. Daniel, what's one thing you can share with other founders who are thinking about raising capital or embarking on the capital raising journey? Think wisely about what, what sort of value you're looking to get out of your investors. So some founders might say, you know, we just need the money. We're going we're gonna to be dead in three months. We need the cash. Like, fair enough. Like, that's a, a fair enough reason. But really think about your motivations for the capital because based on the motivations of the capital, I think it'll help you inform who your investor should be. And also it'll help you identify faster the right investor for you because if you're raising capital for a very specific reason, like let's say you're looking for uh, investors who've done lots of, let's say, PLG work, who invest in companies that are specifically to do e-commerce and you, you want all that expertise, then it'll help you quickly narrow down who you speak to and it'll help also the investors understand. So if you go to someone who's just like very a generalist fund, they might say, well, what, what are you looking for? So for me, it's actually really understanding the motivations behind your raise. It's not just about getting some money to then announce and then put a logo on. It's actually to build a business ultimately. So these people are almost as crucial as picking your founder. Not quite, but you know, in some ways, you've got to have put in really significant decision-making into what partners you're bringing on and how do they solve the problem that you're looking for. That's great advice, Daniel. I'd like to finish off with what I call the quick six, which is six rapid-fire questions. What's your favorite work from home, lunch or snack? I probably like to just have like a sandwich or something. I'll go downstairs and there's a nice shop underneath me which does these nice chicken spicy sandwiches, which I'll just grab. What's a great book that you've read recently? An interesting book that I read recently is The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. It's an interesting look at what happens when, I suppose, governments apply modern monetary theory. And given that we're kind of living through a period of time which they're doing that at historic rates, gives an interesting perspective on what are the causes and effects from it. So I would recommend for people to read that. What's a documentary or podcast that you've watched or listened to recently that you could recommend? So I was recently listening to the Background Briefings podcast about the rise of far-right groups, especially in younger uh, people, which was quite shocking, but a very interesting in-depth look into what's going on that we might not all know about. What's the most useful good or service that you've purchased in the last 12 months that costs $100 or less? Probably the most useful thing for me has been YouTube Premium, just because I end up watching a lot of kind of like videos from all those different events that happen, like Sastra, and watching them with ads is pretty awful. So having YouTube Premium is amazing for the lack of ads that have on it. And it also combines my YouTube music subscription as well. So I don't have to pay for Spotify. So that was actually uh, probably one of my favorite purchases recently. What's on heavy rotation on your music playlist right now? Uh, I watched Stranger Things the other day and Running Up That Hill. Uh, came was was part of that show, and so since then I've been listening to that nonstop. I can't get out of my head. If money and time were no object, Daniel, what would you be doing tomorrow? I think the only thing that I would probably do is do more of what I'm currently doing. Love it, Daniel. This has been lots of fun. How do people find you? The best place that people can probably find me is on LinkedIn by uh, searching for Daniel Vaslov or Relevance AI, uh, and I'm also on Twitter. I don't tweet as regularly, but I do like to engage there. So both places people can find me on, especially if people are looking for new opportunities. would love to 
have some conversations. Awesome. Building out a team. I love it. We will have all of your contact details and those for relevance in our show notes. Daniel, I am very grateful for you and for sharing your story with me today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mylan. This is great. You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you deeper into founder stories about capital raising. We'll have all the contact details for Daniel and Relevance AI in our show notes. If you'd like to raise capital like a guru, like Daniel, grab one of our capital raising term sheets for equity and safe raises. Head to termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru. Raise capital successfully and faster with Termsheet Guru so your startup can make an impact. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe or follow the show wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And while you're there, share the love and leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising journey.